On behalf of the Polly's Vague Theories podcast team and our guests and everyone involved, I want to acknowledge we are recording on Lutruwita, home of the many mobs of Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Their stories have been transmitted for over 65,000 years and we pay our respects to their elders and their ancestors. I also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening and acknowledge your ongoing connection to land, sea and sky. I also acknowledge that connection is unbroken and that sovereignty was never ceded and the ongoing trauma experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their culture and communities from the aftermath of colonisation. Always was, always will be. On the podcast this episode, my guest is Dean Yates, former war correspondent and bureau chief who covered some of the biggest, most horrific incidents in our living memory. The Boxing Day tsunami, the war in Afghanistan, you name it, Dean and his team were there. His new book, Line in the Sand, documents what it was like to be that guy who was in those horror trauma situations and the enduring aftermath of his PTSD, his denial, the diagnosis, and most importantly, the impact it had on him and the people in his ecosystem. It's an incredible book and it raises a lot of really important issues for us to consider as people who move through the world with friends, loved ones, peers and co-workers who are silently experiencing these extremes of emotion. Dean is so interesting and articulate and I can't wait for you to hear from him. But before we dive in, a little PSA. This episode does cover off on the themes of depression, mental health, mental health hospitalisation, suicide. And if any of those things sit in a tender spot for you, just proceed knowing that we will be discussing them. All right, it's time to hear from Dean. Now, it would be very remiss of me as a trauma therapist not to start this episode of the podcast, Dean, by asking, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good, Polly. I've got to say, I'm in a really good place and uh, probably the best place I've been mentally for many years. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which um, I'm not going to go into right now, but let me just start off by saying I'm in a great place. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that. I wanted to really start exploring this journey you've been on with the book because it's an incredibly vulnerable act to write a book full stop, but to write a book that is a memoir that covers off on the painful intimacy that you've talked about in the book, it's a big thing. Tell me what the experience of writing this was for you in the body, in the mind, in the world. Yeah, wow. Well, to be honest, uh, there were times when I thought I can't. I just can't continue doing this book because it was so painful mm. and it was so uh, it involved a lot of reliving of some very traumatic uh, moments, events in, in, in my work life. And it also involved a lot of trauma for my, for my family in, in particular for my wife, Mary. And a lot of that, a lot of the trauma for her was reliving the, the times when I was in the depths of PTSD. So reading about when I was uh, agitated in the house, when I was angry, when I was um, moody, and those moments when she and the, the children, 
who were younger at the time, were fearful of how I would react if a door slammed or if someone dropped a, a cup, those sorts of things. And, and, it, and just for, for Mary, reading that, talking about that was for her having to relive it. And so I think there were, there's been a lot of times during the past seven years where that has been tough for her. But on the other, on the other side of it, the writing of the book has been incredibly therapeutic. It's, it's awakened in me a deep understanding of the trauma that I've been through and that we as a family have been through to the point where I, I just don't think there's anything more that, that is left for me to uncover about this journey. I mean, I'm sure there always is, but, and that has enabled me and especially Mary, uh, it's enabled the two of us to come to a real deep understanding of what we've been through together, why we're still together, and how we can continue to build our lives together. I think one of the things I love about this book so much is how much you're acknowledging the ecosystem of trauma as it plays out interpersonally and, and what a role Mary played and the children. I, I feel really moved when I sort of saw that you had such a deep understanding of the impact it had because I think quite often that there's a lot of collateral damage that happens around the intensity of uh, PTSD, CPTSD diagnosis and I know it's recognised within the systems but to have it so publicly acknowledged I'm sure Mary has felt a great deal of validation because of that. Yeah no she really does and and there have been times where there was actually one time where I said oh, I'm finished with the book I'm like no I'm, I'm stopping the book. This is probably two or three years ago. I just can't deal with this anymore. Mary was the one who convinced me to keep writing. And, and that was because she wants the message out there. She wants the partners of people with PTSD to understand what it's like, and then to be able to, to get help, to have a better awareness. And, and by partners, she means predominantly women. Uh, and that has been her mission right from the start. And, and look, to be honest, Polly, I didn't, I, I think I understood on an intellectual level that my trauma was affecting my family, but I didn't really, I, I couldn't feel it at, at first. You know, I, I just didn't appreciate how much it was affecting them until, until I started, I guess, my own journey of recovery. And what really helped me understand the impact that I was having on them was my admissions to Ward 17, because because of the, the, the multidisciplinary approach that they took there to, to treating me and in helping me understand the, the sort of the effect that I was having and the way they brought the family into the whole treatment process. I mean, the, my, my social worker spoke to Mary on the phone. The nurses would call Mary and ask her how she was going. My psychiatrist spoke to Mary. She, Mary was involved. In, in that whole treatment process. And so that really helped give me a, a better understanding of the depth of the impact that I had on the family. It's a really nuanced understanding, isn't it? This idea that we have an intellectual understanding that there is a knowledge part of our brains that is registering what's going on in a very narrated, real-time considered way. But we often don't understand how much 
once we are moved into that limbic part of our brain, when we're really in the PTSD reaction part of our body, there isn't that connection. We aren't, we aren't using that part of our brain. So it's, you know, you can kind of think it, but it's almost uncontrollable, that stuff that happens in the body. And I think you've spoken about that so eloquently in terms of an anecdote that you tell around your therapist saying to you, like, well, we've heard you tell the story of Dean the journalist, but now actually tell us what it is to be Dean the journalist. And that, you know, that's a really, that's a beautiful, gentle therapy <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah, no, she really got me. Uh, this was really did. My, my psychiatrist. I mean, she because I was so used to, by that stage, I was just used to rattling off the, the death tolls, the, the places, the events, where all this stuff happened, whether it was the Bali bombings, the Boxing Day tsunami, all these incidents in Iraq and so on. And I was just rattling off the detail as if I was reading a news report, I suppose. And she just pulled me up and she just said, Dean, I feel like I've just been listening to essentially a journalist uh, recounting a story, but I want to hear your story. What is it like for you to feel the way you feel? And I, I just, I sort of sat back in my chair and I thought, okay, she gets me. And that was the start of a great connection between Dr. Mariam and I, whereby we built a, I guess, a partnership, a collaboration. And, and she was so curious about me. And that was something I noticed right from the start. She really wanted me to, to, she really wanted to understand my story. And that first session we had, she didn't bring up medication until right at the end. She wanted to hear my story first. It was only right at the end that we even started talking about medication. I thought that said a lot about her and her approach to uh, psychology, basically. Absolutely, and it's really beautiful, sort of from, from my modality preference in terms of internal family systems, to have a therapist that can honour and listen to the part that narrates while recognising that that part is protecting you from feeling. Something else that you wrote about, Dean, that really interests me is that this idea that you were in denial for so long about the PTSD. Mary could see it, everyone else could see it, but you were very much, no, 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 this isn't happening to me. Are you able to describe what it felt like in the body when you when you recognised and you surrendered to the fact that, yes, you had PTSD and, yes, you were about to be admitted into the ward? So that denial, you're right, it went on for a period of years. And, mm. and look, I was in denial for all sorts of reasons, one of which was that I'm, you know, here I am living in Tasmania in this beautiful, safe, pristine part of the world. Where's the threat, right? Where's the terror? There is none. Why, why am I starting to exhibit all these PTSD symptoms? How can that be possible in a place like Tasmania? Uh, the other thing was that I hadn't been in a war zone for years. I hadn't been in a natural disaster zone for years. Another reason I was in denial was that even though Mary kept telling me that I needed to get help, this stupid male masculinity of mine was saying to me, oh, no, she's wrong on that. She's right on everything else, but she's wrong on that. I, I just didn't listen to her. And the denial even extended after I was first diagnosed. So when I was first diagnosed by a psychiatrist in Tasmania, it didn't change anything. I didn't even, it took me four months to even look for an article on PTSD or read a book about PTSD because I was still in denial intellectually. Yeah, okay, I've got PTSD, but emotionally, no. And the moment, there was a day in particular about four months after my diagnosis when there was just a whole whole lot of things happened and 
one of which was Mary and I were sitting down and we we're talking about something. And she said, Gee, do you remember that day when we were in Devonport and we heard the news that about collateral murder, the videotape that showed the deaths of my staff in Iraq? And I had literally buried that event so deep into my consciousness that I'd forgotten about it. I buried it so deep. I didn't that it just it, it was gone. And uh, and this was about three weeks before the ninth anniversary of the deaths of my staff. And when Mary mentioned this, it just, it was like all of these feelings about the deaths of my staff came sort of flooding upwards. And it was like, oh my gosh, I have buried this stuff so deep that I've forgotten. I have almost, I've literally forgotten where we were, which was in Devonport at a parents place when we when I first opened a newspaper and read that the collateral murder tape had been published by Julian Assange and I didn't I didn't know and and so on and I thought I've got a real problem and um and so that afternoon I sat down at my desk and I started to take a journal I started to write down on a I started to write I started to write just what was going on inside my head at that time. And also on that same day, I ordered my first book about PTSD. I just, it was the start of the emotional acceptance, I think, that I had the diagnosis and that I had, that I was in, I was in trouble. Didn't stop the, it didn't stop the decline. It didn't stop the plunge. I actually went further downhill and within a month or so after that, I was suicidal. And that's why I needed to be admitted to the psych ward. But it took it took something as drastic as that for me to actually accept, if you like, the emotional reality that I needed help. It's so interesting, though, isn't it, that I think even with all of this experience you've had, our tendency is still to, to talk about this stuff as though we had some control over it, that, that intellectually I was doing this to me as against it's moved so deeply into our autonomic system by this chat, this point that you're not doing anything. You are literally enthralled to the how strong your nervous system can protect you. And then the point at which the nervous system's just like, you know what, this is too much. You know, so when you say it came flooding upwards, if only we recognize that's where it is. It's it's a bottom-up process, sitting in the gut. So there you were with all of this white knuckling intellectual, it's all going to be fine. And then suddenly one little thing. So and the other thing about this as well, Polly, is that another reason why I thought I was fine was I was still, I was still a I was still performing well work-wise. I mean, uh, but there was no issues there. Um, and and I think that's another factor for people who who have who've gone through trauma, who have suffered PTSD, is they still can can work well. And that's partly because it's I think work becomes a distraction. It becomes they throw everything into their work. It helps keep the it helps keep those memories at bay for a while. Um, locked away and so I, I was still a top performer basically uh, and so if I was if I was still a top performer then there can't be anything wrong right that's right and I mean I think we're so brilliant at compartmentalizing and I think men particularly to gender it 
are really, they're schooled in the compartmentalizing and the crushing down of emotions. And it's rewarded the kind of behavior that helps keep PTSD at bay. You know, you are working nonstop. You're fully focused on that. That's seen as being strong masculine traits, which leads me really beautifully, Dean, into sort of really where I want to go into some of the depths in this podcast. And maybe controversially, I don't want to talk so much about the book because what I actually want is for people to read the book because it's incredible. But there's a couple of things for me that were raised in the book that I think are a frontier we have to go to in terms of how do we lead from a place of trauma information? How do we care for people? You spoke so eloquently in the book about this idea of of moral injury, your moral wound and the secondary trauma, which I think you said was more potent and more painful than the first. I would love you to give us just some background into this idea of moral injury and that experience you had with it, because this is super important for us to understand. Yeah, so moral injury, uh, I, I think it's people are, are beginning to hear about moral injury more and more. And it certainly makes sense to people when you explain it to them. Uh, it essentially is, is the idea that um, there are two types of moral injury. One is which where you have either done something, failed to do something, or you've witnessed something that is so horrific, uh, so so horrible, that it leaves uh, a, a terrible stain on your soul, on your conscience. It, 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 it just it wrecks who you are as a person. It's a wound to the soul. The second type of moral injury is deep betrayal. And we see this, we see this a lot in the workplace. We see this where people, uh, for example, I'm just going to use the example of first responders, soldiers, who've been thrown on the scrap heap because of the work they've done has resulted in, in them developing PTSD. And then they've been chucked out. Uh, and after contributing years for their country or their community, they are no longer wanted and they get abandoned, lose their identity. And, and so that you can just imagine the betrayal that those people feel after having given so much. And the idea of the, the thing with moral injury is that it's very similar to PTSD. A lot of a lot of the very same symptoms, but its signature symptoms are, are guilt and shame. You can imagine, right, if you are the perpetrator of something, if you've done something or failed to do something, you can see where the shame and the guilt can can occur. If you are the if you are, if you have been deeply betrayed, it's rage. And and where and, and where the symptoms come together is um, it just creates a it creates a very toxic mix that in many ways is harder to deal with than PTSD because a lot of clinicians have never heard of it. It's not recognized as a mental illness. There's no medication you can take for it. it and it requires a much more, I think, um, open-minded holistic way of dealing with. And, and so in my case, for example, I suffered moral injury over the deaths of my staff in Iraq. I failed to protect them. They died. They were killed on my watch. And there were there were other aspects of moral injury that I, I suffered as well over their deaths. For example, when Julian Assange published the wiki, uh, the collateral murder tape, I said nothing. I and and this was partly a PTSD response, right? It was avoidance. I, I went into this state of shock. I I just didn't want to I, I hid. I was I just didn't want to know anything about it, but I knew more about that collateral murder tape than probably anyone alive, and yet I stayed silent. I just couldn't 
deal with it. And so, and as a result, there was really no one there to tell the true story of what happened to my staff, Namir and Saeed. And as a result, years later, I felt deeply, deeply ashamed for not speaking out when I could have. That was moral, that was my moral injury. And you can't just walk into a psychologist's office and say, this is what's going on, and then have a psychologist turn around and say, well, let's do some cognitive behavioral therapy. And we're going to start off by saying, really, let's let's question your opinion on this. Let's let's maybe you're so there's some erroneous thinking going on here and so on. The, the, one of the foundational concepts of moral injury is, for, is to accept that people actually, maybe they bear some responsibility. Maybe, maybe they do bear some culpability for what's happened. And you go from there. So you work towards a, how, you, you work towards a healing, a, a process of acceptance. And oh, wow, this just resonated for me. It really resonated when I got onto this concept back in 2016. And uh, that's not to say that traditional treatment methods for PTSD don't work either, but it just requires an open mind and a willingness for, for someone to work with you on it. Because I think, uh, well, I, I suspect that there's a lot of people out there who are probably have, have, have brushed up against moral injury, but just don't know. I think you're so right. And I would also, I'd make the correlation between the way you describe moral injury is to me so much like the experience of so many people's developmental trauma, particularly as children. You know, the ultimate betrayal is that the adults whose one job it is to look after you for whatever reason, without apportioning any blame, are unable to keep you safe in the most potentially benign way as well. They're just not there for you emotionally. They just don't hear you. They don't see you. You aren't hear, heard and seen and known to them. But when you describe that experience, in Afghanistan, what's interesting about it is it has all the hallmarks of what happens in PTSD. So PTSD is always about the immobilization and the silencing. It's not about the injury because the injury or the accident or the shock trauma, that can often just be worked through the system. It's the immobilization through the nervous system that leads to the inability to work it through. And moral injury gives that to us as well. So it's kind of the double whammy. It's always been a great source of fascination to me that we with our first responders, particularly our service people, that we consciously train them to be able to disconnect, compartmentalise and, and undertake acts that in any other setting would be an act of moral injury. But we don't do the reverse when they come back. And there's this thing of, I mean, for me, every single person who is basically in any kind of a service role, we should assume they have PTSD and we should also assume we have a duty of care to support them and soften that until they're ready to re-enter. I just don't get why we don't do that. Yeah, and it, it's, it shocks me as well, Polly, and it, and it really, it distresses me. Uh, I mean, when I first went into Ward 17 in Melbourne, so this is a, this is a psych ward that was originally set up mainly for veterans going back decades ago now. Then it started to take a lot of coppers, uh, other first responders. Now it's it's open to generally anyone who's suffered some sort of um, uh, act of violence or workplace incident, right? But it's 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 still really known as, as a psych ward for, for veterans and first responders. I went in there without any idea of just how badly our veterans and first responders were being treated by their employers 
by DBA and by the workers' comp system. What I saw in there shocked me, absolutely shocked me to my core. Uh, and what I discovered was that over the three admissions I had was that, and not only did I, I discover this just from, just from the conversations I had with, with the folks in there, I actually asked them this directly. I asked a lot of them this direct question. What has been worse for you, the occupational trauma or the way you've been treated afterwards by the system? And every single person I spoke to said the latter. It was the system that had made things was worse. In other words, for these, for these folks, for soldiers and first responders, it hasn't been going to war. It hasn't been going to murder scenes or car crashes or fires that has really messed them up. It's been the way DBA or workers' comp has treated them. That has been what has ruined their lives, basically, made it virtually impossible for them to get back to lives where there is where they have dignity, a sense of, of mental health, and to be able to live with their with their families the way they would want to. And I just find that scandalous, absolutely scandalous. Uh, they're just it's it's a system that is set up to be adversarial, and it's it's really it's killing people. Uh, and so I hope that with this book, that it shines a bit of a light in this very dark corner of our society, which, which really needs to be changed. And this, again, speaks to that heart of the conditions for PTSD is in the betrayal is the not being believed. Although every shred of your experience has spoken to the terrible things that have happened to you, that you someone else is like, well, you need to prove that. Yeah. <laughs> Really and, and exactly, and this this whole concept of proof comes down to workers' comp and DVA, right? And so, I mean, it just it just beggars belief that you'll have you'll have coppers in there who have spent years and years on the job, seeing the most horrendous things, and they end up and they end up being challenged by workers' comp about their diagnosis. Who workers' comp then comes in and and they have these so-called independent psychiatrists who come in and challenge the diagnosis. They'll, gen, they'll then drag their case out for, for years until these people either give up or in some cases take their own lives. And it is it really has to change because um, what we all signed up for a job, right? Whether it's copper, ambo, fiery, journalist, rescue worker, soldier, health worker, child protection officer, we all signed up for the job pretty much knowing what we were getting into. What we never signed up for was the sort of betrayal that comes later, and that has to stop. Dean, I'm interested in your thoughts on how do we manage this in contemporary workplaces in relation to there are many of us. I mean, I see the walking wounded every single day, and they're people that often they have they might have a workplace trauma, but often they're people that just are living resiliently and beautifully with their own traumas, which have a series of behaviours or impacts that may or may not be present in a workplace. What is that best practice of care look like where we don't need people to disclose? And if they do, we don't stigmatise them. How do we manage that where for some people it's important to flag that there are things which aren't going to be comfortable for them and there are some things that they're going to need without us seeing them as having a stigma? You know, when you talk about workplaces, Polly, I mean, you know, there's all these new laws going into effect around the country around psychosocial hazards and so on in every state. And I was talking to so I was talking to someone about this a couple of months ago, and 
and I said, a workplace is taking this seriously. And this person said, he'd been speaking to a lawyer who said, yeah, we'll take it serious when, seriously when someone goes to jail. And I thought, wow, I mean, really, the cynicism of businesses and organizations when it comes to this sort of stuff is just revolting. Uh, and I mean, I, look, I know that a lot of organizations put profits over people, but it's just gotten to the point where we seem to be living in a, in a society where this whole run your people into the ground mantra uh, has, has just gotten so out of control. And I, I think we all thought that COVID might've made a bit of a difference, right? I think we all thought that COVID might have made a difference in changing attitudes of organizations to how they treat their people and look at mental health. But I don't see any evidence for that. I don't see any great shift. I mean, you, you're looking at, you look at all the layoffs that are occurring around the world at the moment. I mean, Google, Google ripped the heart out of its mental health team, for example, including its head of mental health. And I've, I've heard from a, a, a colleague of mine in the UK who says that this is where the cutbacks are occurring there, is on, is on workplace mental health. Uh, I was never replaced when I left Reuters in my head, head role as head of mental health in 2020. So I, I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. People somehow, individuals are managing to get by despite the workplace pressures, the betrayals, the fact that organisations are putting so much on the shoulders of, of workers of, to deal with burnout when it's actually the organisation that, that is the one causing the burnout. And I'm just not sure where the tipping point arises where where what is it going to take that we get to a point where where organizations and workplaces look at people like we do the environment now where it's actually you know you have to show your green credentials i mean for god's sake where do we start actually showing our human credentials as an organization i'm not quite sure what it's going to take to get to that point i'm so wildly excited by that idea i'll be up all night thinking about what the credentialing system looks like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's paint the picture of if if you're, I mean, this is your world now. You're a mental health expert, you're a consultant, you go into businesses all across Australia and the world and help them get this best practice in place. Tell me what you would put together for the ideal way an organization cares for their people. Yeah, so first of all, the leaders have to be involved right from the word go. They set the tone, right? I want the I want the head of the company involved right from the word go. And if they're not, it's not going to work. Simple as that. Next thing is audit. What have you got in the toolkit? What have you got already there that supports people? What have you What have you got as far as your mental health supports, whether it's an employee assistance plan? Some are good, some are not so good. But you'd be surprised at what actually you can get out of these, these EAPs if you look and if you actually uh, explore what they offer. Some of them are actually a good value for money. Um, and then you, you, what I what I say to organisations, and I have to be I have to be honest, I don't I haven't said this to many because I can't get a lot of them that interested. I'll be I'll be upfront, Polly. I don't I, I'm not getting a lot of interest in the sort of overall strategy that I can provide. But what I would say to them is, you you've got to do your audit, have a look at what you've got, and then you have to come up with uh, an overall plan, an overall strategy that involves. Uh, training, 
manager training especially you got to train your managers on how to look after the mental health of their teams uh, because the research there is very strong in fact the world health organization last year put out some um uh, some statements on this the black dog institute has been banging on about this for years they did research that showed a return of $10 for every $1 spent on training managers on how to look after the mental health of their teams. Uh, there has to be clear, very, very clear policies from HR and on work health and safety on making mental health a priority. Some policies don't even mention mental health. And one of the things that I think is absolutely vital, and I've tried to get organizations to do this, is that you say to your staff that there is no reason why disclosure of a mental illness or trauma-related condition will affect your career or your place at this organization. Because at the end of the day, that is what frightens people most, is if they, if they were to say, to say to their boss or their manager, hey, I've just gotten a diagnosis of X, then that might affect them in some way, shape or form. I mean, we were at a conference last week together and this, this question came up when we're on a panel discussion, I get this question all the time. Uh, and the simple, the simple way to resolve this is for organizations to make it clear that the disclosure is not going to harm you, shouldn't harm your career. I mean, I, and I use the example of when I was at Reuters, I tried to get Reuters to make this policy, right, that disclosure shouldn't harm anyone's career. And I used myself as an example. I said, well, okay, if I've come out of the psych ward, and I said to my boss, I want to go back. I want to go and do a reporting stint in Baghdad. He's going to naturally say, I think that's a bit too soon. But what if I've been out of a psych ward for 12 months and my psychiatrist says, I'm doing really well and I should be able to handle the assignment? That's fine. In the end, the, the HR refused to make this policy. And I, I never got a straight answer on why. But I'm sure the, the lawyers got involved somewhere. But um, there is just... These are just some of the ways that an organization can can look at an overall strategy. Uh, I don't think it's as complicated as some organizations might think. I don't think it's as costly as some organizations might think. I'd. There's a lot of research out there that shows there's a good return on investment on doing this. It's just the it's it's just the willingness to do it. That's all that's lacking right now. It's funny, isn't it? You know, I'm a pragmatist. I spend a lot of time in organisations training for leadership, trauma-informed, mental health, all of that stuff. And what surprises me is I recognise that a lot of particularly private companies, they don't, they need to understand what the, the bottom line is. They need to know what the ROI is. But there's so much data around exactly as you say, it's the investment proactively, but also the costs of not retaining staff, of workers' comp claims, of dealing with disengagement in the workforce, presenteeism, morale issues, the churn. It, it, it makes such financial sense to do it as well as creating a psychologically safe workplace, which is always a productive workplace. So I, it sort of surprises me because like you, I think it's pretty straightforward how we create psychological safety is not a complicated map. It's straight. Yeah, it, look, it's an absolute no-brainer, Polly, and it has been for years. Um, the research is absolutely unequivocal uh, mm. that this will help your bottom line. You'll have a, uh, you'll have, you will not only it will not only help your bottom line, but you will you will be a favoured place to work. What else do you want, right? <laughs> it, it just seems to be um, the sort of 
the sort of thing that every organization should be doing, which leads to the question, well, who are you going to get to do it? And, and I think there are questions, you know, there are very legitimate questions around who are the experts in this field? And uh, I mean, it's not like people have degrees in this stuff because there aren't degrees in this stuff. You have the Black Dog Institute, which is fantastic. Uh, and they are, they are experts in this. Um, but I think there's a lot of companies out there selling snake oil when it comes to this sort of stuff. There are a lot of people out there who don't have any real experience in uh, what we are talking about. And I think there's a lot of people out there also selling stuff that is really, that doesn't really have an impact. And by that, I mean, you know, a training, as I said to one organization last year, I said, look, I'll come in and do a bit of training for you, but it's not going to make any difference. I said, if you really want to have a meaningful impact on this, you need me to come in and sit down and let's talk about an overall strategy. Let's come up with a plan. One training session here or there is not going to make a difference. That's right. And it really has to be that idea of it's embedded in every part of the organisation and it, from a policy level, from an employee, bottom up, top down level, it becomes part of the ecosystem and then it's a systems approach. But also that would be how you'd want to have every part of the company to meet the goals that you've got, because ultimately it's going to point the company towards their ultimate KPIs, which I assume for most organisations is increasing revenue. (laughs) retaining staff, delivering that thing that they're doing, product or service to the world. Dean, it's such a joy sort of thinking about what can happen when we really get some some tentacles in with these kind of ideas and organisations. Just to finish up, I want to know what is what is your book as a messenger? I mean, you've put the heart and soul of you and your family and your wife into this of all your experience. In your perfect outcome, what is the messenger effect of this book as it goes into the world and it's hopefully read by hundreds of thousands of people? Millions. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I really want it to have an impact. And I, I'm really I'm really hoping it has an impact on organisations. I've got to say that because I see a lot of strength I see enormous strength and courage amongst individuals. I I saw it in Ward 17 every single day. Just people getting up, getting up and going to the mobile med station, getting their meds and attending group sessions. I mean, oh, wow. That's strength and courage there, right there. Uh, I'm I'm not going to say to those people, hey, read my book. This is a roadmap for how you can get on with your life. No, they've, they've already, they're already doing enough. I, I hope that my book serves as a, as, a, as, a, as a force for change, I guess, for organisations, for governments, for, for, the, for the clinical sector to realise that at the moment, there's a lot more that needs to be done. There's a lot more that could be gotten right. And that there needs to be passion brought to this project. And that if if my book can serve as an inspiration for that, then those seven years that I've spent working on it will be worthwhile. Dean H, it's such a joy to have you on Polly's Vague Theories. The book Line in the Sand is coming out on the 27th of June, published by Pan Macmillan. You will have a chance to see Dean on Australian Story. It'll be on iView from the 19th. And I really look forward to seeing this impact you're going to have in the world. Thank you, Dean. You're welcome, Polly.
Oh, that is it, my friends. Another episode wrapped, another mystery solved, another long ramble on the nervous system completed. What more could you ask for except more, more, more? If you would like a vague theory explored, you can head to the website www.pollymcgee.com. Top right-hand corner, there's a little button where you press it and anonymously email me and ask me to talk about anything related to trauma, the nervous system, therapy whatever floats your boat until next time when your boat and i rise together stay regulated and stay at the very top of your polyvagal ladder